This is Daryl Wood, host of Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show on Faith Talk 1500. First, let me say this show is your show. That's why no matter what I discuss or which guests I interview, your input is valued. If it's in the news, on TV, or at the movies, whether political, social, economic, or whatever, at some point I'm talking about it on Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Real life. Hey, wait a minute. What's the name of your church? Real Life Christian Church. Real life. Get real with another edition of Think About It. Real life messages from Pastor Dennis Rasper from Real Life Christian Church. And now, let's listen to the message from Pastor Rasper. Today is the last in a series. The series is called What Matters? So today we're going to talk about investing in ourselves. And So the question comes to us, how much attention do we pay to ourselves? And I believe biblically, biblically speaking, I mean, we should be a fourth priority. The first is building a relationship with the Lord. Second is the priority of family. Third is devoting yourself to your calling and being sensitive to the voice of the Spirit. And fourth, what you do for yourself. And so with that in mind, we have to look at this whole thing, or we need to look at this whole thing called self-esteem, because that is such a a big deal today. I mean, we make such a big deal about self-esteem. As a matter of fact, everything that's quote-unquote politically correct has self-esteem behind it. So you don't tell me moving in with my boyfriend is wrong because then you're telling me that my lifestyle is wrong and yours is right and you may be damaging my self-worth if you tell me that. Don't dare say that being a homosexual or a lesbian is a sinful lifestyle because my self-worth is at stake. It's all self-worth. Don't say that your Christian faith is right and what I believe is wrong because that may make me feel badly about my choices. So consequently, keep the name of Jesus out of everything for the sake of people's sense of self-worth. That's what political correctness is about, self-esteem. And as we think about focusing on ourselves, that fourth priority, let's look at the Bible's view of man and what that says about self-esteem. And how, how good... Man really is, biblically. I mean, we use the term in theology, total depravity. Mankind, and that includes me and that includes you, is depraved, totally depraved. Or where do we begin as we look at the Bible's view of man without Christ? Or man in his natural state, let me put it that way. Man in his natural state. I think I'll begin with Genesis. Genesis 6, verse 5, and the Bible says this, The Lord saw how man's wickedness, listen, man's wickedness, You saw man's wickedness, how wicked man had become on the earth. Now listen, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's man in his natural state. Here's a great description of man from Jesus himself. And this is in Matthew chapter 15. And this is verse 18. Jesus says, this is verse 19, for out of the heart... Out of the heart, come listen, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, these are what make, listen now, a man unclean. 
That's natural man. Romans 5.10 says, Before you place faith in Jesus Christ, you're an enemy of God. And then I look at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 6, and this is a great picture of um, man before Christ and man without Christ. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 6, it reads like this, The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Holy Spirit is life and peace. Now listen, the sinful man, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Though, let, this is, man, this will get you. Those controlled by the sinful nature, that means apart from Jesus Christ, cannot please God. That's a mouthful, man. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. People resting on your own goodness to get you into heaven apart from Christ. The word of God just said you can't do one thing to please God. Nothing you do pleases God. You took care of your sick mom for 14 years. 14 years you did everything for her. Doesn't please God. God's not pleased with that. Not apart from Jesus Christ. Not apart from Christ. And that's the Bible's picture of us, of me. So what about self-worth? And folks, we have it. We can really feel good about ourselves. But where does our self-worth come from? Why can we feel good about ourselves? First of all, we need a sense of the holiness of God. How pure and without sin and separate from sin the Lord God is. I mean, we got to get a hold. And I don't have a hold of this fact, man. How much God hates sin. And now we get to the reason I can really feel good about myself. Here's the grounds for mine and your self-worth. The just wrath of God the Father poured down on his own son instead of me. And Jesus felt it. Matthew 27. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, he cried out. He cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was feeling the full wrath of his father that he loved, punishing him for my sins. And um, he's taken it all for me. And see, and the Son of God took that punishment willing, willingly, and the holy, you know, I think about this. I, I talked about, you know, why I give my offering. I, I mean, the, 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 the whole, I, I got I to deal with this stuff. I mean, the Holy Spirit dwells in this garbage pit trying to make me more like Christ. Why? Why all this? Because of love that absolutely defies description. I'm at a loss for words to describe that love. Listen, that's why your kids, when they're taking some flack from their so-called friends or they're severed from their group, they can say, I'm valuable and I can stand for what I believe because look at what the Lord did for me. That's why you, when your husband or wife finds someone else more attractive in you than you and they bed down with them, that you can know and believe I'm beautiful to the God of all creation. And that's self-worth. I mean, depraved sinner that I am, yet my father gave his son. My Lord shed his blood. I am that precious. And would you just deal with this and think about this? He wants to spend eternity with the likes of me. He wants me to be with him forever. Folks, that is self-worth. And when I have that self-worth, people don't have to tiptoe around me and worry about what they say to make me feel bad. And there's lots of people like that that you have to tiptoe around. Lots of people like that right here. You don't have to be like that. You don't have to worry about making me feel bad. 
because I have self-worth in Jesus Christ. And I know I'm loved. And now we can stand for the truth of God's word. And we don't have to be accepted by everybody. It's not all consuming that everybody likes you. Not when you have real self-worth. It's not all consuming that everybody validates you and validates your lifestyle and tells you how great you are and how great I am. Hey, listen, if I'm wrong and I'm living wrong, don't validate me. Tell me I'm wrong and let me deal with it. Because then I'm going to seek the Father's forgiveness for Jesus' sake. I'm going to go get those sins out of the way and get them forgiven. And then I'm going to look at the Word of God and I'm going to see how God wants me to live. And then the Holy Spirit's going to empower me to live the way He wants me to. I mean, He is so in love with me. That's my self-worth. Now, the question is, do you pass this on to your kids and to your loved ones that a good self-image is rooted in how much God loves them? Today, if a kid doesn't get as much playing time in a game as the next, as the next kid, who may be a lot better, or get equal treatment, or get the same number at the same cost as their brother or sister or friends or whatever, if they don't get the same, if all things aren't equal, oh, poor them, their self-image is damaged. And that's mom's and dad's and grandma's and grandpa's fault. Mom, I'll tell you, if, you're ch- if the child you're producing, if that's your child, you're producing a generation who believes that all things must be equal. No matter if somebody else works harder, no matter if somebody else has more skills, everything has to be equal. And, and, and you're raising, quote unquote, the world owes me, kids. You want your kids to be in Luke chapter 7. Or this lady comes to Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, verse 36. I mean, this lady was a sinner. Luke 7, 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went, to the, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. I mean, this lady was so consumed with her sin. She was so consumed with her sin. Jesus was inside that house. And, and she, she, she just kind of burst in, this verse 37, and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, very expensive perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped him with her hair, she kissed him, and she poured perfume on them. All of which means she believed he was the son of God and had the authority to forgive her sins. And here's what the... Um, people of the day thought of her. Look at verse 39. This is what people thought of her. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is such a sinner. Then you look at verse 44. Here's Jesus. Here's how Jesus treated that lady. He turned toward, he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon the Pharisee, he said, you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any, you didn't give me any water for my feet. This was customary. And she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, which was customary. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not, I mean, she was so grateful for her forgiveness. She wanted forgiveness so much. I mean, you did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Then he went on to say, he who has been forgiven little, loves little. He forgave her sins, which were many. And his forgiveness, he said, enabled her to love others. Now she could look at other people. And, and she, could, she could look at other people with pay. I mean, other sinners. 
with patience, with understanding, because she had been forgiven this enormous debt of sin. And now this lady had a tremendous sense of self-worth that was rooted in Christ's love for her. No matter what the Pharisees, the religious people of the day thought, no matter what the townspeople thought, man, that lady had a sense of self-worth rooted in the love of God because look what God forgave in her. And that, you know, and that was all that mattered. And she felt really good about herself. And folks, past that, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for a sinner like me and the wonderful forgiveness of my Father, pass that on to your loved ones, and all things won't have to be equal. If somebody else gets more or better, they can still thank God for who they are and what they have because their sense of self-worth is grounded in his love. And when they stand for the word, and when you do, and when I say stand for the word, you're not going out of your way to make people dislike you. That's the wrong approach. But sometimes you stand for the word and the word of God, the gospel itself is an offense to people. And when you're not accepted for that, when you stand for what you believe, you can deal with it. When you're rejected, when you're alienated, you can deal with it because your sense of self-worth is not based in what other people think of you, but your sense of self. And again, you don't go out of your way to make people dislike you. You don't do that. But when you're not accepted for what you represent, you still have this tremendous sense of self-worth. And I pray that you um, pass it on to your kids, man, because they're going out into a world where they're going to have to represent what they believe. And more and more, they're going to be alienated. So we're considering what matters. But we need to deal with this. As we think about investing in ourselves, Jesus said, as you think about investing in yourself and how much you, energy you devote to yourself, Jesus said we need to die to self. And that's a big deal in the Word of God. Death to self. In Luke chapter 9, verse 24, we read about this paradox. Luke 9, 24. Jesus says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will save it. And Jesus just said, You've got to die to self. And death to self is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Now, you've dealt with people who think, who think you Christians are in such bondage. I mean, you can't do this. You can't do that. You, you, you can't have any fun. And you're not free like I am. I want to tell you something. We're the freest people on earth. I, I'm the freest guy on earth. I mean, we are really free. And, 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 and I just want to mention what we are free from that unsaved people are not free from. And unsaved people here today, I'm not knocking you. I'm just saying we're really free. I'm kind of defending Christians here, kind of inviting you to be a Christian. Here, here, here's the first thing I'm free from that, that unsaved people are not free from. It's the fear of death. I don't have to live my life thinking when I die, I'm going to heaven. I think. You know how many people live like that? When I die, I'm going to heaven. I think. I don't know for sure, but I think, but you're not really sure. I want to tell you something, man. Assurance of salvation is so important. Only Christian people have that. I look at 1 John 5, 13. I mean, John writes this. He says, I, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, and that word know is know for certain, that you may have eternal life. See? We live our lives with a purpose. We know where it's going. We know our end. And I'm free of that knowing thought. Does everybody really go to heaven? I'm, here, here's something else. Here, here's the third thing I'm free from, that we are free from as Christian people. We are free from ourselves. That's the biggie for me right now in this life. I am free from myself. I, I am free from asking the question, how does this affect me? As if I'm the center of the world. Somebody dies, I've honestly heard this. Somebody dies, first thought, well, if they don't have calling hours that fit 
my schedule, I can't go to the funeral home. As if everything revolves around you or him or whoever says that stuff. I mean, God spare me from first thoughts like that. I mean, whatever the circumstance, God spare me from that godless first thought. You're watching the news, you're talking about a circumstance, anything, and that godless first thought is how does this affect me? How's all this affect me? You know, I'll tell you, we are not shackled to that. We're free from that. I mean, we died to we died to self in Jesus Christ, and we have the life of Christ flowing in us and through us, and our first thought really can be, how do I meet that person's need? And 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 how can I change whatever it is I need to change to meet that person's need? See, you're free to do that, see. Death to self is a message in itself, but it's very liberating, folks. Being a genuine Christian frees us from, from fear of death. It frees us from the guilt of sin. It frees us from ourselves. And here's a great prayer. Lord, may I die to myself more and more every day. And so God tells us to invest in self. That's the fourth commandment, okay? And here's, here's some practical stuff. The fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20. You don't have to find this. It's the fourth commandment. I'll read it to you. Verse 8. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Let me say this again. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord. To worship on the seventh day, which is our Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, was a commandment God gave only to the Jews. You've got to know this. Commandment God gave only to the Jews. And I say that because Messianic Jews today and Seventh-day Adventists will tell you that you are dead wrong and you're sinning and you're going to hell if you don't worship on Saturday. They'll tell you that. I mean, that commandment, now you got to look at it this way. That commandment, the fourth commandment, is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is never, ever repeated in the New Testament. That, that all the rest are repeated. That one is never repeated because for us in the New Testament, the fourth commandment means God knows how he made us. He knows what sin did to our human bodies. He knows your body's going to wear down. He knows you're going to need rest. He knows you're going to need to slow down. And that's why Psalm... Psalm 103, verse 14 says this, For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. That's biblical, folks. He remembers that we're dust. We're weak. We can only do so much. We can't be all things to all people. We have to take time to renew our, ener our energies, and that is a divine mandate from God. One of the first things God commanded the people of Israel to do and this kind of make, doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you understand why he did it. What's the first thing? I, I think it's the first thing God commanded the Jews to do. Once they crossed the Red Sea, they were out of bondage in Egypt, and now they're wandering in this wilderness for 40 years. He commanded them to build a huge, big tabernacle. And to take that tabernacle down, set it up, take it down, set it up, everywhere they wandered. And the reason he did that is because he wanted his people to worship him. You know, I asked myself, why did God tell them to build this big, big tabernacle, lug it all through the desert so people could come together on, under one roof as a corporate body and worship God? And when you worship God, what happens? See, the singing this morning, were you thinking about your problems? No, you were lost in him, weren't you? You get lost in his greatness. When you worship God, you get lost in his power. You get lost in his love. You get lost in his grace. And, and, and you leave your worship thinking, man, I have such a great God, there's nothing I can handle, not with him. Anybody need to think like that? 
See, you worship God and your spirit is renewed. That's the big deal. God knows that. You worship God and your spirit is renewed. See, God knows we are dust. Psalm 103, 14. He knows our spirits need to be renewed. And part of commandment four is to take daily time to investigate his word, to pray, not as a chore, not as a duty, but to see his greatness, to see all he is and to be renewed. And when your total focus is on him, you're not focusing on yourself and all those diddly little things that cause you such anxiety. You're seeing how great your God is. Yeah, we worship God and get into his word and prayer because he's worthy. Of course we do that for that reason. But God knows we need to be refreshed. And one great purpose of worship with the body of people and personal time and prayer in the word is refreshment and renewal. And God knows that, man. And that's why you've got to worship him. God knows it's just going to take you and change you from the inside out. Think about this, Matthew chapter 4. When did Satan tempt Jesus? Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So he's out in the desert. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to turn to bread. So when did he arrive? After Jesus did not eat for 40 days when he was weak. Now here's what you got to know about Satan. He can only be in one place at one time. Satan is not everywhere. He's not everywhere. But he has an, he has an army of demonic spirits who watch God's people. And they're watching God's people. And they know when you're weak. And they know when you're tired, and they know when you're most vulnerable. See, devils know when we're tired, and that's when you're vulnerable to attack, and when you have bad negative attitudes, and you're defeated, and you're depressed, and you see no hope. That could very well be from the world of devils, because they're trying to shut you down, man. Devils love to shut you down. And when you're working like crazy, when you're involved in this, when you're doing that, and you're not taking any time for yourself and no rest, nothing like that, I mean, you're just inviting them in. You're saying, come attack me. Get me depressed. Get me down. Get me because I'm vulnerable now. And see, and see, when you're tired like that, what happens? You get irritable. And you get irritable with the people you love. And when you're irritable, it shows through you can't hide it. And what do you do? You build walls when you don't get rest because you're irritable. And let me ask you, is that worth it? Is that worth all the relationships that are destroyed? I mean, here's something else too, man. We get so busy. We miss important things, and that is so sad. So busy, we miss important things. I just have to look at Luke chapter 10, and this is the story of Mary and Martha. And a lot of you people know that story. Jesus and the apostles are there for dinner, and Martha is just running herself crazy. Running, and that's good, it's good. I mean, she, someone needs to do that. But she's running herself crazy, trying to get everything ready. And there's Mary, her sister. And Martha comes and says, and she's sitting at Jesus' feet listening to the word of God. And Martha comes to Jesus, and man, is she irritated. She is irritated. And she says, will you tell my little prima donna sister to quit sitting at your feet and to come in and help me? And what did Jesus say? Listen to this now. You got to listen to this. Verse 41, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things. See that? But only one thing is needed. Now listen, Mary has chosen what is better. And it will not be taken away from her. That quiet communion with the Lord, time to sit, listen think, learn, was more important than racing around and being busy. Folks, God wrote that. God said that. God said that. 
I think to myself, how many people are like me? Because I miss the moment. How many moments I've missed. The family's enjoying each other. The kids are downstairs playing games. And my mind is set on the next thing. This is going on right in front of me. And my mind is set on the next thing. We miss the moment, precious moments, because we don't know how to slow down. And I tell you, I regret the precious moments I miss. I regret those moments because we can't slow down. Now, one more thing. As we think about investing in ourselves, in rest and recreation, we need to wind this thing up by looking at Psalm 101 for just a minute because we spend a lot of our recreation time, a lot of our recreation time watching things. A lot of our recreation time watching TV and movies and reading books and listening, especially young people, to music. Folks, be disciplined. Be aware of the presence of God to what you give your eyes to. I guess that's the only way I can put it, man. You have to be aware of the omnipresence of God. He is right there. You be aware of the presence of God in what you give your eyes to. Let it be your heart to please God with your eyes and with your ears. As I look at Psalm Psalm 101, David had just been crowned king of Israel, and he wrote Psalm 101 immediately after his coronation. He is the brand new king of Israel, and in verse 2 of Psalm 101, he makes this pledge to God. He said, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. And then he says, I need help. When will you come to me? I mean, that was David's pledge to God, to be a role model to all the people in his kingdom. And I ask you, do you make pledges like that, to be a role model? To be somebody your family and friends and co-laborers can look up to and be like. And then look what David says. The Holy Spirit moved David to write this in verse 3. He said, I will set nothing, I will set before my eyes. See that? No vile thing. Man, that begins in your home. Think About It is sponsored by Real Life Christian Church. Real Life Christian Church meets in Endeavor Middle School, 22505 26 Mile Road, just west of North Avenue in Ray, Michigan. Sunday service starts at 10 a.m. Visit us on the web at rlcc.us. Never miss a single message from Pastor Rasper. Just go to faithtalk1500.com and download the Real Life Podcast. And until next week, may God's Word do a work in you. Real Life Christian Church. Get real.